Projection Booth Podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found on the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. I've been accused of being a misogynist. Only by women, of course. I'm sure you realize that display models can't be sold. Order of the Board of Health. Every time I think I can get someone to trust with a little responsibility, it's never true. Every time I think I can count on someone, I get hurt. I care about power. I can't waste time beating around the bush. Position six. Hey, baby. Oh, you look awfully nice. Box. You had to sell my bomb. You asshole. You don't. You impotent jerk. You fool. You unmitigated clown. You know, not every girl gets a chance to fuck me. Will you shut up and get on with it? I'm from the Bureau of Internal Affairs. Is this your wife? Yes. I, uh, hope you won't be insulted by anything I say or do. It's because of this odor that I have. Smell it. I told you, it should have been in my underwear drawer. I don't know what could have happened to it. Honest. I want you to understand right now that I'm not a revolutionary out of any sense of altruism or love of humanity. I don't care about anybody but myself. can see that it was all because of that vicious suck. She calls herself Madame. <laughs> I'm not asking too much. All I want's a little amusement. <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna blow all the rest to hell. This bomb I'm expecting. This bomb I'm expecting. This time, baby. This time I'm gonna blow them all up. So, you like to watch? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Now remember, the display models can't be sold. Board of Health regulations. You understand. Also with us this week is author Heather Drain. Hello. Glad to have you back, Heather. It is wonderful to be back. Thank you guys for having me. So what do you get when you mix a one-way mirror terrorism, ball gag, sunglasses, and an explosive dildo? If you answered smoker, a duck will come down and pat you on the back. 
Yes, this week we are talking about Smoker, the 1983 adult film from pseudonymous director Veronica Rocket. The film stars Sharon Mitchell as Madame Suck, or Suk, a terrorist who creates a bomb in the shape of a dildo. The weapon of erotic destruction is mistakenly sold by Freddy, played by Ron Jeremy, to an innocent woman, Sophie. Also along for the ride, in many senses of the term, is the man in sunglasses, John Leslie, and a cross-dressing voyeur, Howard, David Christopher, who watches the fun in his next-door neighbor's apartment through a large one-way mirror. If that sounds a little complicated, that's because it is, but we'll sort it all out on another episode of The Projection Booth. Now, Heather, as our guest, when did you first see Smoker, and what did you think? Well, to be honest, I, I my first time seeing Smoker uh, was actually earlier this week. This is a film that I'd read about for years and always wanted to get a copy of, but um, due to some you know, pre-Mies uh, pre, uh, Commission uh, B&D. Smoker is not an easy film to get a hold of uncut. Um, you basically have to uh, get it bootlegged because it is out on DVD currently, but it is cut by about, I believe, 30 minutes. I think it's missing like over 30 minutes of uh, original footage. And I, I refuse to support, I don't know, you always want to get like the uncut copy of films. You don't really want to support censorship, these companies. But this is my first week and I loved it. Unless it's Mormons censoring it, <laughs> I don't. I, I think if a Mormon watched Smoker, um, it I don't know. It might unleash some very interesting <laughs> repression issues. But I I was absolutely blown away by it. Um, you know, there's always that kind of fear when you watch something that you've read about for years that there's going to be the disappointment factor. You know, is it really going to live up to uh, whatever imagery you have in your head? And with Smoker, it surpassed it. And I kind of knew the ride I was in for with this one, but um, I really didn't know the ride I was in for at the same time. I watched the Clean Flicks version. Uh, it was two <laughs> minutes. There were uh, opening credits, just one still shot, and then uh, I saw Sharon Mitchell, and then that was it. So it was it was quite amazing. Uh, no, actually. <laughs> I, the version that you sent me was uh, 125 minutes, I think, something like that, or hour and 25 minutes. It was quite interesting to me. It is a little convoluted. It has sort of this um, sort of dream aspect. It's very sort of, I don't necessarily want to say expressionistic, but it does play a lot in shadows. And I think that there are several places in here where it is um, referencing other films. And one specifically that I thought of was Rear Window in terms of at least one scene and there's a lot in this film related to voyeurism. I would say that this film is more about the voyeurism than it is about anything else. I find that there are so many neat themes that are going on through this that it really kind of grabbed me when I first saw it. And kind of like you, Heather, this was one that I read about a while ago. I read about this in uh, Susie Bright's The Erotic Screen, and we'll be talking to her a little bit later as far as how this kind of made it into her book. She... I don't want to say she was very critical of films in her book, but as a writer writing about adult films, she had seen so many. And when it comes to people asking her, what's, what are some of your favorite films? This one is near the top or at the top of her list, which I was like, okay, well, why is that? And I tracked down a copy and I was like, okay, yeah. And then also she had mentioned that Veronica Rocket was 
uh, had worked on some of the Steven Sadian films, Brent Stream films, and it's like, okay, if there's a connection to that, I want to check this out because I'm a big fan of his work and I wanted to know more about Veronica Rocket. And I could definitely see that influence as I was watching Smoker. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's funny because the very first image you see in Smoker is, you know, Eric Edwards and Sharon Mitchell on the floor. And it's that great black and white checkered board floor. And of course, black and white patterns come up a lot in uh, Stephen Say. Is it Say? I always say Sadian. I don't even know where I heard his name pronounced. But yeah, I'm fine with whatever because it's one of those names that I've only read and have never actually heard, at least not from his mouth. Right. Well, and the, and the I know in the introduction to him and the Latrange Festival, I think the guy says Sadian, so I'll I'll stick with that. But you know, uh, Stevens' work uses a lot of kind of stark black and white patterns in there, and so I immediately saw that, particularly that scene in Night Dream with the masked man enters the bathroom with Dorothy LeMay by herself, and you know, there's lots of great shadows in that. And you see, as Rob mentioned, lots of great shadow play and light play all throughout the film. So it's definitely, there's a lot of really big differences, though, between this film and Steven's work. Namely, the thing that kicked my ass with this one was the use of audio. Because music, music is something that permeates all of Sadian's films, almost from, you know, scene to scene to scene, where um, other than the title screens, actual music doesn't pop up in Smoker until like the 33 minute mark which I thought was a really interesting move. That's very unusual, especially in erotica. One, it's great, too, to see the opening credits and that uh, Sharon Mitchell was singing the songs in the film, too. I was like, oh, that's kind of a nice touch. Oh, I know. Yeah, she's got a great voice. I, it's funny. I always wondered if that was her singing for real and Susie Superstar. And I guess I guess it was. So, you know, Miss, Miss Sharon Mitchell, we call her Miss for many reasons. But yeah, just the audio. And we can go more into that in a bit with some of the specific scenes. But just, uh, you know, there's lots of white noise used and lots, lots of weird kind of sound effects like almost it almost reminded me a lot of um like the early work of Eister Zendo and Boughton, some of Boyd Rice's like the non stuff also there was a band called Premature Ejaculation like Ross Williams from Christian Death his band and uh, it reminded me a lot of that like really kind of early there's one scene in particular that has almost an industrial feel and I just I thought that was really striking it's not it's not the sexiest choice at all <laughs> for audio but I love it for it and I think, to Rob's point, that really kind of puts you in that dream state, like right at the beginning, especially the way that those opening credits and opening sex scene are kind of cut together with that noise at the same time, the noise during the credits, and then Sharon Mitchell and Eric Edwards going at it and her kind of giving her manifesto as they're having sex on the floor, which I found to be uh, a little endearing, actually, <laughs> as she's just kind of going at it and giving her whole, like, I'm going to destroy the world kind of thing, which I, I found to be really, really uh, a good way to start this film. And that's the thing that I really liked about that opening, especially with her manifesto. You know, they're having this scene and she's doing these lines while they're having sex. And the whole part of what she's saying couldn't be further from, I guess, maybe a film that would have been 10 years earlier for what I'm saying is this is the early 80s, right? So we've come through the 70s. Things are really starting to grind. You know, you're into Reagan. There's all this stuff going on. But if it was 10 years earlier, it would have been, I'm doing this for the people. And, you know, there would have been this sort of like almost like flower power kind of thing. But no, no, no. 
by the time you get to this point, it's like grungy, dirty. She's like, I want to destroy things just to destroy them. It's like, I don't care about any of that stuff. I just want to entertain myself. And it's that whole punk rock ethos that Mitchell just really kind of embraces not only just her as an actress, but just like her look and everything just kind of you know spits in the, the whole face of what people would normally consider to be like that porn star you know aesthetic, that whole long hair airbrush kind of thing, which she just does not do. Oh, no. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why so many people, well, there's a lot of reasons, because, I mean, you know, Sharon's a great actress, she's charismatic, she's a great performer, but I think also the fact that she did have, you know, and does have such a unique look and is feminine, but masculine, almost has that androgynous thing, and yeah, embraced the punk look way before, I mean, now people are kind of spoiled by Suicide Girls and stuff like that, but back then, I mean, the only other person that really kind of did that initially, when Lois Ayers first kind of came onto the Scene. I mean, she had this great mohawk, and I think even that got kind of tamed, you know, by the mid to late eighties. So that new wave music, man, it's driving those bitches crazy. <laughs> 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 oh my god, that's what we that should be a whole other episode right there. <laughs> you know, the thing that's funny is on the other angle of this is that you have Sharon Mitchell doing this real punk thing, and then you have John Leslie's character, the man in the sunglasses who is totally, I guess, sort of straight or um, not, you know, in that way, but straight as in sort of company man, government man, G-man kind of attitude. And there's this line in there that he has in the beginning. It's in the first probably three or four minutes into the film. Totally reminded me of another character that we know who is based in this same period. And what it is is he has this line where he says about my image. My whole look, these sunglasses, this National Geographic, you might think it's part of my character, that I'm the personification of cool, or some kind of cartoon character, that it's a mask, or whatever you like. But you're wrong. It's the totality of me. Take it away, and there's nothing there. And I go, what does that sound like? It's Patrick Bateman. It's almost verbatim, if you take the line that he says against the line in American Psycho where he analyzes himself and says, There is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I simply am not there. And I saw that and I said, hmm, I wonder if Brennan Nelson had uh, seen this because it almost seems like a direct lift. And it just really kind of speaks to that whole early 80s thing that you're talking about, especially, you know, the the rise of the yuppies, that whole thing that, that Patrick Bateman would come to represent. He is really that kind of a character and I, I love him later on in the film when he's talking about his appeal to women and especially because of his <laughs> his scent there are some lines in the film that just really get to me and just so unusual and well written and then sometimes unusually delivered like the line about ron jeremy uh the line from ron jeremy where he says you know, not every girl gets a chance to fuck me <laughs> i also like the line that he has about um i don't know you make me feel good, and I'll remember. You make me feel bad, I'll remember that too. But don't worry, I'll keep you posted on how I feel. It's just a 
kind of a crazy line, but the way it's delivered and the fact that it comes out of Ron, it just it works. I don't know. He has this kind of um, court gesture-ish kind of attitude, you know, in this. And I guess that sort of the character that he's sort of played forward, I think, in, in our image, when we have an image of Ron Jeremy, he's always kind of this jovial, jokey kind of guy. He definitely seems to be on the outside of what's going on and not necessarily making fun of it, but he definitely is having a good time while he's doing it. Oh, yeah. Well, and the thing the thing I thought was really interesting about this, this film's use of Ron is that Ron Jeremy is a really underrated actor because I've seen him do their films, particularly uh, Cecil Howard's Scoundrels where he does like serious kind of a dramatic role and he's really good. He can do drama. I mean, he's a whole, he's a funny guy and he's really, he's a funny actor, but um, he can do drama well, but he can also do sinister really well. And um, like another Cecil Howard film, Firestorm 2, I mean, he's completely creepy in that and he's very believably creepy. And so Smoker kind of in, in way, you know, like his whole scene with, uh, I think it's Troy Lane's character, Angie, like the first bondage scene you see where she's tied up and it's him and Eric like he's totally kind of creepy he's still kind of court gestury but he starts getting kind of into the sleazy rapey you know territory of that and Ron's almost kind of like the perfect actor for that because he's he's funny and likable but he's also there's an edge you know there's like kind of a sleazy creepy undercurrent that he can bring too I would be remiss if I didn't bring up his turns in the trauma films because in Toxic Avenger 4, he plays the mayor of Tromaville. And while he's good in that role, I really think that if you're going to look at the stuff that he's done with Lloyd in the, in the trauma folks, it is his role as uh, Will Keenan's father, uh, Casey's father in Terra Firmer, where he is sort of gives this great sort of, as we were saying, kind of court gestury, but creepy performance at the same time. And uh, it's really worth going back to check out if you haven't had a chance to see it. And this is early 80s Ron, so he doesn't really have that whole hedgehog look going on at this point. He's actually still very handsome at this point, to me anyway. And this is like one year prior to him being the karate master and raw talent. So he's really kind of at the top of his game, for me anyway, um, in this kind of era. So it was nice to see him show up. And, it, you know, you're talking about him kind of being underused as an actor sometimes. And this, he's almost underused as a porn star because he has sex a few times, but it's not a typical porn movie where it's just like, okay, we're going to stop everything right now and focus in on the size of these guys as, you know, cocks or anything. It's just like, uh, you know, the sex is. I don't know. I don't want to say a torture device because she seems to be having a good time, but you know, it's it's more of a, a a way to move the plot along, which is what we've talked about before. As far as these you know earlier era films, what we enjoy about them is that the sex is so integrated into the work instead of just being like a okay, stop, start the sex scene, cut now a few lines of dialogue back into the sex. Not only that, but I think also within this film. It's not just one type of thing. And what I mean no. is, is that when you look at a lot of adult films, it's like, okay, here's your twosome, here's your threesome, here's a solo scene or whatever, and then you know you get four of those and you're done. This, it, it's broad. I mean, you have solo this happening during that. You have two really, at least two really heavy bondage scenes that, as you were talking about, Heather had the axe probably taken to them in the uh, in, in the cut version. That there's all of this 
broad range of stuff in it when it comes to to sexual expression, which is really interesting to me. And once again, we were talking about how it's uh, not so I, I would say it's not so uh, pop shot focused either, where it's like, oh, we got to get to the got to get the guy off and then we're done. We're on to the next scene. It doesn't even seem to be that related either. Well, I want to say after we've got that initial sex scene, one of the next scenes that we have as far as intercourse goes is the two women in the other apartment and then the Howard's apartment, the David Christopher character, him, I don't think he's dressed up in that one yet, but he's pleasuring himself while he's watching these two women go at it behind this large one-way mirror. And as the film goes on, he is continuously kind of upping the ante on his side of the mirror where he goes over, sneaks over into the other apartment and gets some of the uh, woman's clothes. He's dressing up. He's, he's manipulating himself while that's going on. And there's a lot of shots where you don't even see what's going on on the other side of the mirror because it's him reflected back to him kind of going at it, which is, you know, you don't even see like a generally a whole lot of masturbation when it comes to adult films. It's more the interaction. So it's kind of nice to see him doing this solo act on one side of the mirror while there's other acts going on on the other side. Or if you do, and it's a quote-unquote straight film, it's a woman. It's never... No, no. Even though it's like that whole idea of, like, this is the audience, you know, like, generally what I don't know what the percentage is, but, and, and it's probably changed since 1983, but it's like, you know, you generally assume that the guy who's going to be going at it, or the, the member of the audience who's going to be, you know, flogging themselves is a guy. So it's like you seeing yourself reflected on screen and him looking, you know, so it's kind of that one layer removed that I love that whole idea of the, you know, the, the middle layer of the looker and that you're identifying with this other guy rather than getting off on this girl who's doing it. So I don't know as far as how you see that Heather um, coming at it from a, a different gender. <laughs> well, the thing I thought was really fascinating with how, um, David Christopher's like solo scenes were presented is that particularly in that first one with the, you know, where he's watching the two girls is that like verses, like angles and compositions, like his scenes almost shot more sensually. Like you have kind of nicer, more moody lighting. The camera work isn't uh, as porny, you know, as a, uh, you know, you don't get like a huge close up of his, of his penis or anything. It's, it's more like focused on him where, you know, when it cuts to the girls, there's like this really aggressive close up of like, you know, insertion with the, the explosive, you know, the, perhaps the smoker of the title. I don't the dildo and it's like it's a really kind of ugly shot comp you know composition wise it's not very sexy it's just very like yep it's in there you know but then it cuts back then it cuts back to him and you see like half his reflection and he's just moving and i thought that was sort of interesting because it's like yeah i mean presumably the main audience well the main audience that adult films were geared towards you know was and still in a lot of ways is men and yeah most guys are probably going to be like they're not going to see some guys spanking it uh, especially as aggressively uh, as Howard does so I thought that was a really kind of cool bold move and I thought it was fascinating that I think in some ways Howard seems as, as the sexier yeah, you know, I don't know if that was intentional. Perhaps it was. I think probably everything in this film was intentional. I don't need to see that on the screen. All I need to do is look down. <laughs> <laughs> now you know how it feels to be a woman, dude. <laughs> 
the whole use of the mirror, I really, really loved. I, I love that kind of thing anyways. Um, and you don't always see that too much. Radley Metzger's a filmmaker that tends to use mirror images in almost everything he does. And that's always really interesting. There's one shot that I absolutely just loved where he's watching. It's when John Leslie's, the man in the sunglasses, is in the apartment next door with, uh, with the neighbor who I believe his name is Angie. I think it's Diana Sloan and they're having sex. And at one point, you know, you have the shot of Howard, you know, looking through the, the mirror, you see half of his reflection in the mirror part of it. And you can see them having sex and looking at themselves in the mirror. It's like you have this whole double reflection image sex thing going on. And it's just, it's such a, it's such a cool, cool scene. And then there's even one part where Howard is being spied on. So you have yet even another level going on to that later on. So it's like, it's so nice that we have that and that you get, uh, it's, it's a great set. This whole idea of having these two apartments, you know, side by side and actually going outside of the apartment and seeing, you know, we have that scene at the beginning with the man in the sunglasses, which is outside, you know, natural lighting and all that. But, which is very rare to have in an adult film. And then in this, you know, I know that it's all probably being shot on a set as far as the um, facade of the apartment. But again, we're outside of the apartments. And it's nice to see, especially when the camera is going from one side to the other, or we're outside and looking down as the neighbors are coming out of the apartment, the front of the apartment. So it's just such a nice way to have all of this set up and to see that interplay play of who's in what room, um, not like a French farce or something where people are running back and forth in the hallway, but just that uh, play of what's going on with these two apartments. That's where I got that rear window kind of idea where, you know, they're walking by and they're looking at different things and different windows and, you know, the idea of voyeurism to some extent as well. And then I think to your point, Heather, the whole idea of the sound mix too, like hearing the cars outside, hearing the the neon and everything, it, it was really nice to have that kind of sound mix to a film where most people don't even pay attention to that. Again, that just was something that I just, I love. So I think the two elements that a lot of filmmakers, whether, whether they're an adult film or just, you know, non-adult film, that they kind of tend to neglect is audio and lighting. And this film definitely nailed both of those very well and uh you know i loved like the whole natural because that's the thing up until the 33 minute mark i i do have to mildly correct myself because there is that song that his neighbor is listening to while she's doing sort of her erotic dance aerobics but then like you hear you see her turn it off and it ends like it's like everything you know the music up until the 33 minute parks used very naturally you know like your you know like day-to-day living kind of style which is cool and uh and again, just the ambient, all the ambient, you know, noise stuff is just so brilliant. I mean, regular films weren't really experimenting with stuff like that. So to have that in an adult film, I think is really special. Yeah, to have Happy Days Are Here Again show up towards the end. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you're right, it is just really nice to see bondage being portrayed in films. And, you know, it's, it's more of, I don't know, it's erotic in one sense, but it's actually being used for kind of, you know, keeping people tied up against their will in another sense. And you don't get that in very many films. You probably, I mean, very many, I don't want to say that this is a mainstream porn film, but it has people that you associate with, quote unquote, regular porn, the the faces that you think of when you think of, of porn films. So to have 
that to have bondage inside of a film where you see, you know, the the folks that you expect, the Ron Jeremy's, the Sharon Mitchells, etc. You don't get that too often. You know, you didn't go to see. I mean, even like a, a movie like Taboo with Jerry Butler. It's like I don't think there's any bondage in that, even despite the name. It's like they were playing on one taboo versus others. So. And there were so many films where it was either just shied away from or it was just chopped out. So it was good to see this uncut version of it. Well, that was Uh, one of the things that I wanted to kind of talk to you guys about related to those scenes is that it really is, as you were saying, it's bondage, but it's not sort of that, well, I I like to be tied up, so tie me up and do this stuff. It's very, um, as you were saying, it's to control, it's to get something out of this character, it's used almost as punishment. It's not political, uh, politically nice uh, bondage in that way. And one can understand, I guess, maybe when they started censoring in that era in the 80s, why these scenes got cut out. And was just wondering sort of, what's your take on those? Do you think that uh, that, that has a place or do you think it kind of uh, is on the line there in that way. First of all, uh, the way that bondage was used in poker to me is almost kind of a throwback to, you know, the 60s roughies, you know, like the works of Michael Finlay and, you know, all of that, all those great films that definitely people were tied up and it was a power play. It's a crime thing. And um, smokers, you know, used to bondage was definitely more of that school, except the rope work was a lot more uh, professionally done <laughs> than it was in the 60s film. I think it definitely has its place. I'm a firm believer with the arts in general, I don't, you know, I'm anti-censorship as long as people are not getting hurt for real in a non-consensual way, you know, um, you know, if people, if it's consenting adults and, you know, go for it. I don't think anybody has the right to tell you, you know, what you can see and what you can do as long as it's, you know, as long as it's properly legal, meaning, you know, nobody's getting killed or anything, you know, I think it's fine. Yeah, I remember seeing years and years ago um, a film with Ona Z, and she was talking uh, in it. It wasn't a documentary. It was an actual adult film, and I wish I could remember which one it was. I mean, she's only been in a, a, like 180 films, so I, you would think I would be able to remember. And she was talking to one of the characters about the whole idea of bondage in adult film, and that at one point it just became – kind of forbidden. I don't know if it was actually outlawed or if it was just kind of one of these bylines that people live by, um, at least in that kind of, I don't know, uh, in the valley shot type porn movies where you do not have sex with somebody that's tied up, whether it's consensual or not. If someone is tied up, anything that's done to them is automatically considered to be against their will. So that's generally as far as what I understood, and maybe that's true, maybe it's not. I mean, this is, I'm getting this dialogue from a porn film, so who knows. But that's generally what I tended to see. I mean, there was like the back room at the video store, and then there was the back back room where you got the rougher stuff. And that's where you could see bondage, but again, people weren't having sex while they were tied up or anything. There was no penetration going on. So it's like, okay, there is that kind of weird thing where you're either tied up or you have sex, but you can't be tied up and have sex at the same time. There's a lot of tying up and there's a lot of sex while being tied up in this. Maybe this is where sort of, I guess, mainstream film and adult film sort of agreed for a certain period of time, because I know that with the MPAA, you can, as you were saying, you can have violence and you can have sex, but you can't have the two together. So, like, bondage sex scenes that, I mean, obviously, 
not real sex within a mainstream film, that was a no-no. That got you an X. So, or an NC-17. So that was always an issue. I remember with with filmmakers, they're like, "Well, you know, there's this scene where I tie someone up, and then there's sex." So it's like, "Oh, sorry, can't do that." So I think maybe there was that for a while because I think maybe both sides of of the coin were um, a little bit worried about this. But also, like you were saying, this is '83, so there's still theaters. Video is is bigger, you know, getting bigger at this point. But um, I know that when we talk about adult film and its ability to be distributed in certain parts of the country, it needed to have a plot. It needed to have certain things. And I think that maybe that was sort of, I guess, one thing too much. And that's the reason why those things were not uh, not put in, in the, at least in that way. And then everything changed with Madonna in Body of Evidence. There you go. <laughs> it all goes, all roads lead to Body of Evidence. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Mantegna cross-examining her. Is it true that you are a dominatrix? (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I think also with the 80s, I just think it it just seems like people were kind of made to feel more and more afraid of sexuality and exploring. I mean, the great thing to me about classic adult films is that, you know, you had filmmakers that could explore different sides of the human condition of human, human expression and sex as a tool and but that tool isn't necessarily always used to get you off. Yeah, like we were talking about Sadian. I mean, good luck, good having a hand cafe flash. I mean, you know, but it's a great, but it's art. You know, you don't have to. You know, it doesn't always have to be for prurient purposes. That can be a bonus sometimes. But I think with Smoker, that's definitely more of that school. It's what I would call it a no hatter. <laughs> We're going to take a break and play an interview, actually more of a discussion, really, with sexpert Susie Bright after these important messages. You know, I was looking for a little excitement, but I was worried about privacy. And then I found out about Vibrators.com. Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women and men and couples. They have helpful suggestions and information on how to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus, for over a decade, Vibrators.com has never played around with your privacy. While other .coms make their money by selling your information, Vibrators.com never has and never will. And when you use the special code BOOTH, that's B-O-O-T-H, at checkout, you'll receive free priority shipping on any order. That's Vibrators.com. Get a little excitement in your life. Coming to you from the Bag End Studios in Southern California, it's Vices in Teramo. 30 minutes to kill. A brief podcast about horror movie classics, cult favorites, and even new and unreleased movies. You can find us at Bag End, that's one word, bagend.biz forward slash vi.html. Let us help you kill some time. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, Proudly Resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know, it's messed up, right? This is Jamie from Devour the Podcast. Do you enjoy horror commentary with straightforward honesty? Oh my God, this movie. This movie is so hard. Oh my goodness. You know, I, halfway through this movie, I was just like, let's get this thing going. This movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> humor and an obvious passion for the genre. I like the cut of your jib. The ceiling, Grandma. Don't make me get out the broom. Oh, your tears are like wine. They used to call that the vapors. Cupcakes are kind of the Schindler's list of desserts. It's it's a, a pure good. I love the idea of up-and-coming horror directors taking on the found footage genre. I really, really like that idea. And that's really the worst thing you can commit as far as filmmaking is concerned, is making a film that's just average. Well, that doesn't really inspire any kind of discussion, whether it's, you know, to rip it apart or or praise it. Then you should spend time with David and me. And Bo. As we discuss horror films from old classics. Deep Red. Empire of the Ants. Lisa and the Devil. The Baby. The Toxic Avengers. The New Favorites. Absentia. Cabin in the Woods. The Loved Ones. Shadow of Death. VHS. The Woman. Check us out on iTunes or at devourthepodcast.blogspot.com. Devour the Podcast is a proud member of the Horrorphilia Podcasting Network. Do you have an unexpurgated copy? That's the question. Well, I can easily tell you how you'll be able to figure it out. And it's one of the cruelest post-Mies Commission cuts of all because it really does disrupt the continuity of the movie and the admirable narrative. The scene that would have been missing was, did you see where the young blonde woman is being fucked in the mouth and the cunt by two men, and Sharon Mitchell is is stroking her head and quoting Nietzsche? There's a lot of sex that I was very surprised to see as far as the young blonde woman being tied up and being taken advantage of, which I did not think was allowed anymore, especially she's tied up and there's some double penetration going on. Okay, you have an original copy then, if you watch that. You're at all. Yeah, you're there. All right, good, good. Yeah, because it didn't feel like there were things missing, where, you know, now sometimes you watch things and it's like, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense why this is going on. Yeah. Exactly. Though I'm still curious as far as Sharon Mitchell as the head terrorist kind of person, Madam Suck. Isn't it great how this film makes more sense than ever? I mean, when the movie was made, there was very little sense of the word terrorist. It was still sort of an unusual word. I mean, it wasn't something, it was the pre-9-11 era. uh, And now it seems like ripped from the headlines. Yes, her little terrorist cell with her and her her lover guy and Ron Jeremy as the flunky. <laughs> exactly. He makes such a great flunky. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out, though, what she's rebelling against, other than, you know, the old Marlon Brando, what do you got? But I, I'm not sure what her plot is. I think her plot is very much like a Valerie Solana scum manifesto, you know, that the world is a bore. Fuck it. The stage, the square, the banal, it all calls for a kind of a punk rock uprising. And those who act, I mean, I think it's a, it's a mishmash. You could tell that the filmmakers who went by the, the pseudonym of Veronica Rocket, but it was two people, Michael Constant and Ruben Masters, who's a woman, but her, her name sounds very masculine, Ruben and Michael were the double-headed geniuses behind it. And they, you know, they were reading everything from Ayn Rand to Baudelaire to Walt Whitman. I mean, they had so many inspirations. And, you know, they they were the art directors on Cafe Flesh. They were art directing Night Dreams. They had all this background in a kind of a new wave 
cinema movement that made them want to destroy what was comfortable. I mean, asking them what Madame Suck's point of view was is like asking Divine in Pink Flamingos, you know, what drives her to this madness, this sickness? <laughs> I think they had a lot of in common with John Waters in terms of this is what it means to be anti-establishment right now. And they were within the porn industry. This film was rejected for distribution over and over and over again. It's a miracle. It made it on to theatrical streams and was released commercially. A gay distributor, the guy behind Platinum Pictures, said, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. What the hell? Yes, it flies in the face of everything. And at that time, what was upsetting to them, which maybe in today's light doesn't seem that unusual, was the scene where David Christopher puts on the blue, silky teddy he finds next door in the apartment of the woman he, he's spying on, and he puts it on and masturbates and is her, thinks of her, embodies her. That little, very poetic, very authentic, natural bit of cross-dressing just sent conventional audiences and distributors out of their minds. They couldn't believe it. And I may have told you this before. I saw this movie for the first time in a pussycat theater on Market Street. So, you know, big screen, so amazing. It just kills me because that's how films like this were meant to be seen. And when David Christopher pulled over the blue silk chemise, and you know how he's shot through that room and you see the neon light flashing, and it really captures that kind of tenement New York lighting that we, we think of when we think of West Side Story. And when he started getting off and talking to himself and stroking himself in the negligee, Several men in the theater who were sitting around me just got up and walked out. I, I even heard a gasp. <laughs> I can imagine someone gasping in the theater. Meanwhile, I was practically in tears. I thought it was so beautiful, so sexy, so, like, on one hand, really dirty. You know, like, what this guy is doing, it's clandestine. He's spying on her. He's just a total jack-off hound. He's, he's one dirty guy. On the other hand, he is he's beautiful. He's ecstatic. I mean, he's, he's poetry in motion. The way they were able to take those two characteristics in this film, that it was high art, but that it was rude in your face. This is what people do when they get off. The way they married those two sensibilities, I, I think is, you know, how often do you get to see that? Rare. Yeah, unless it's a very specialized, cross-dressing, specific film these days. It seems like we've kind of you know segmented and, and just shattered into all of these different, very specific fetishes that you're going to exactly. get, you know, a, a smoking video or a – which I guess maybe is coming out of, you know, the, the name Smoker, which I still don't understand <laughs> the name of the film. It wasn't their name. It was just a name the distributor tagged on at the last minute. They never had a name that they liked. So, it, yeah, the word smoker means nothing. It was like uh, a porn claptrap at the end, you know, just a trope. Oh, we, you know, give it a name. We've got to release it. But the, um, the thing you talk about, about niche and fetish, I certainly don't feel like I saw that coming. I mean, I always was interested in fetish films intellectually and sexually. You're like, oh, 
you know, this allows people to go right for the cookie that they want. But it was really the technological revolution that got people so interested in drill down, drill down to precisely the hashtag of sex that you like. And when you look at a feature film like Smoker and a great deal of the movies that were made during the Golden Age, that has nothing to do with it. It's almost, they're the literary fiction of the porn world because they're looking for a complete experience physically, mentally, emotionally. And none of the characters, it's not like David Christopher's voyeur is described anywhere in the movie as a cross-dresser, per se. In fact, we see him having very soulful uh, sex with his wife at one point. That's another great scene where they're just getting it on technically in the most vanilla romantic way possible, passionately, that's for sure. But it doesn't have anything to do with what we've seen him beating off to earlier. It's just another aspect of him, which made him so much more human. I mean, most of us, that's what our sexuality really does look like. We all have our little nooks and corners, but there's more than one side to us sexually. I mean, speaking for myself. (laughs) I think I'm speaking for some others. I have to say, I love the scene with the David Christopher character, Howard, eating his jello while John Leslie's the man in sunglasses is having his way with uh, David Christopher's wife there in the kitchen. Joanna Storm. Mm-hmm. What a bizarre cuckolding type scene that really isn't kind of, you know, it's not necessarily a punishment to the husband, but she really has no kind of qualms about having sex in front of him and just the the power of the man in sunglasses, especially his line about, you know, he has that particular smell. Oh, Mr. Sunglasses. That line just became part of my sex life forever. I mean, I, I still say that in bed. They really let everything out of the bag. And that scene, I remember watching, I mean, John Leslie often at that time in his career, a kind of arrogant, know-it-all man's man, and he's and in his suit with his narrow tie, he really was at its apex in this movie. But uh, his opening monologue is over the top. What a performance! Uh, you know, he, he's so full of himself, but he's irresistible. And I remember thinking when we finally see him consummate with uh, Joanna Storm, how this was what a lot of the women I knew who would say, I want some, you know, sex scenes that are going to get a woman off. I want the guy that I read about to come to life on the screen. That's the scene they wanted right there. I mean, if they were all into dominant men and submissive women, that was it. And the fact that they managed to pair that with a cuckolding scene is just... I don't know, the jello. The jello, you know, it was one of the, the punk rock touches. It was just like the cream of wheat man in Night Dreams. You know, they just kept putting in little little notes like that to just mess with your head. Every detail, they were so, their attention to detail was remarkable. You know, this whole thing was shot in a carriage house in South Philadelphia that they were living in. When I went on a pilgrimage to find the filmmakers, they, you know, showed me the whole place, and I got to see the bathroom and the, the set that they created to do the neon tenement outdoors look with and what was inside. It was, all of it was a work of art. I, I remember walking around saying, 
it's incredible. You still have all of this intact, and now I want it to be registered, you know, in the historical places of Philadelphia so that we can ever touch it. Tell me more about the filmmakers. I mean, there was another film that was directed by Veronica Rocket, the uh, I Know What Girls Like. Was that the same people? Exact same people. In fact, Michael is in that movie. Um, he is the, the 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 male star that you don't recognize, the super scrawny, acne covers, leading man. Well, just imagine this. I'm going back to my pilgrimage. So I'm going to see them. We've talked on the phone. This was before email. You know, so all I had was was snail mail and phone calls. I show up in Philly and go to this address. And this absolutely stunning woman who looks like a combination of Morticia Adams and Snow White, you know, with like dark hair cut in kind of a vixenish pre-Betty Page bob when nobody was doing that. And she's all in black and she's just bewitching. And she, she opens the door, looks at me, holds up a cocktail glass and she says, vodka stinger. Seriously, though. And I was like, yes, yes. And I walk in, and right behind her is a fellow I almost was startled. He was one of the homeliest people I've ever seen. And I could see that they were, you know, they recognized that I was staring at them. It was Beauty and the Beast. She was like a miniature perfect figurine, and he was an extremely homely man who had clearly decided he did not give a fuck. You know, he was screwed with trying to, uh, you know, try to make it better or guffy himself up. He had gone in the other direction. He was a genius. He was incredibly charismatic and, you know, was bending people's will right and left. And that was the two of them. They met at NYU at film school. In all that extremely self-aware, artistic filmmaking flourishes, that all came out of their education. They did a short film together when their first production, which was uh, had nothing to do with the porn business, but it was called Hate Cola. I would say it was abstract expressionism on film. I have a poster of it in my living room. I should send you a little picture of it sometime. And they, they had big ambitions and no money, a typical film student dilemma. And they started working editing, art direction, anything they could get in New York and East Coast corn sets just to fund their own projects. And then there was the sensibility that started because of the success of Cafe Flesh that maybe, just maybe, you could get a budget and make something a little more ambitious, something where you cared about production values that would otherwise be ignored in porn, where you could have amazing music and art direction and have a script that was held your attention. I mean, this is a movie which, as you know, you can sit down, begin to watch it, and be completely wrapped until the end. I mean, you, you just have to see. You have to see everything that happens. There is no, like, okay, I'm done, and, you know, walking away from a film like this. We talked a little bit about the censorship when we first started talking. How in the hell... Does this film work with the comeuppance of Madame Suck at the end? Because she's tied up in a rather elaborate setup and violated by Ron Jeremy. How does that does that show at all, or do we just cut before that scene even happens? Well, two things. One is, 
as you're describing it for your listeners, it, it all sounds rather grim, but that scene plays like a farce. I mean, it's funny. It's totally funny. I mean, Sharon Mitchell is just in a rage, and she's dressed like little Bo Peep, and she looks great, and she has been such an arrogant prick for the entire movie, you know, ruining lives, you know. She's Cruella DeVille. She really is. That's her character in this. And so when she finally gets put in her place, as an audience, you're cackling, you know, and maybe you're getting off on it, too, but... It's fun. It's not a. It's not a sad moment. <laughs> no, I like that Ron Jeremy is using her same words, kind of against her as oh, yeah. well. Exactly. Yeah, and he's definitely having a good time. And by the way, they all had a very good time in this movie. You know, when you talk to all the stars, all the veterans from this shoot, I mean, they made what hundreds, thousands of films and movies. Each of them has very clear memories of Smoker. This was not a movie that you know kind of got lost in the memory, not, not at all. When you talk about the cuts that were made, it has to be understood in the context. This was after VCA was busted, that the president, Russ Hampshire, took the fall for the company and said, okay, I'll do, I'll do federal time. Don't indict any of my other staff. It wasn't their fault. It's all on me. And when he got out and when they, you know, his, he served his sentence, he said to his attorney, to Paul, he said to Paul Cambria, I never want to go through this again, and I don't care what in our catalog gets thrown in the dustbin, I'm through. So just make a list, make a preemptively paranoid list of anything that could get us in trouble, and we're going to leave it on the cutting room floor. I mean, we're just going to get rid of it. So this list, which you can look up on Wikipedia, the Cambrian list, is a lawyer's suggestions for how Russ Hampshire could stay out of jail forever. It's not because the U.S. Constitution or any, or any court decided this. It was like a preemptive, you know, here's what you should do to stay on the safe side. Kind of like the way sometimes people prepare for the IRS, you know, like, oh, let's not have any red flags. And if you look at everything on the list, it's so absurd. I mean, one of the items is something like uh, anything argumentative or degrading to women. I mean, are you kidding me? It, I mean, uh, you can't have a story with men and women in it or just women. And if there's an argument or a conflict of any kind, which is intrinsic to drama and comedy, one could say, well, that's degrading. I mean, they had an argument, and, and one of the characters lost the argument or got heated during the argument. What it meant was that VCA took their film stock, and everything that had deep, dramatic, or comedic content was cut um, in ways where the continuity was irrelevant. And at the time, some of the senior editors pleaded with Hampshire and said, you know, one day the Criterion Collection is going to call and say they want a copy of this. I mean, this, is, this has a historic and artistic value. And the answer was always the same. It's just porn. Do you realize what this company has been through? Cut it, get rid of it. If it doesn't make any sense anymore, pull it. It doesn't matter. So it was treated, this is interesting, because I bet you're aware of this too. You know how so many silent films were destroyed during the silent era, and a lot of people are crying about it now. Oh, how could they do that? Why didn't they realize how valuable it was? Well, the same thing happened 
in the 80s and 90s, and it's just that not enough people give a fuck yet. But the exact same thing happened. Great work destroyed. And so the editions that are out there are either pirated, mangled. Nobody gave a damn about whether you could tell why Madame Suck was getting a comeuppance or what the ending of the movie was. They didn't care. They didn't treat it like it was um, of value. I mean, I could say the same thing about movie after movie after movie. I, I have a, you know, I've told you this before, but my next opus on the history of porn, this is probably my most important chapter. It's talking about how some of the greatest films of the period, and I'm not talking about just porn, I'm talking about cinematic works, period, were destroyed because of this reaction to the Mies Commission on Pornography. It's really... It's a tragedy. And, and then compound that with the fact that years later, you remember the huge earthquakes that happened in the San Fernando Valley? It was just, you know, lots of buildings were destroyed. Um, what year was that? I mean, this is more recent. But this is when Los Angeles didn't know if they could recover. I mean, it was awful. And um, the warehouse that had some of the extra copies of, all of BCA's films, everything was destroyed. It's gone. So when when you find a, um, one of these little gems, <laughs> I'm like, okay, you know, treat this, you know, treat this very special. Call Lloyd's of London. I know you wanted to ask me what I've been up to lately, and probably the most satisfying decision I made in a long time was I took my entire archives and collections of films and books, papers, writing on porn and erotica, and I've donated it to the Cornell uh, Library Human Sexuality Archive, which is probably the top preservation library in the country right now. And as much of this work as possible is going to be cataloged and indexed, and anyone can you know, research it, and you'll be able to see the uncensored copies and really, you know, spend time with it. You're going to have to go on a, you know, pack a little bag, (laughs) (laughs) settle in. I always wanted everything I had to be available to the public. I can't just invite everyone over to my house. And now it's in a library where this work is as respected as any, as any part of the library. It's just a magnificent place to be. So when is the Erotic Screen Volume 2 coming out? As soon as you come over to my house and help me finish it. (laughs) (laughs) I need help. Yeah? I need a pressure point. I'm so close. I mean, once again, it's the winter holidays, and I was thinking maybe I could take a few days off and just work on my book. I'm so close. It's just kind of, um, I, I need a support group. And my, my problem isn't, as you know, I'm prolific. It's not, you know, writer's block or, but I don't know what I want to say. It's that I've been very busy as a producer for Audible for the last couple of years. And they're a demanding task mistress. I mean, they just have me um, working around the clock and I get very excited about the books and the actors I'm producing, but then, you know, come five o'clock, I've hit the wall, and how much time did I spend on my book? Not, not enough. 
is the answer to that. So why don't you give me a deadline? I think I need a deadline. You need to be really ruthless with me, not like you are on the radio. You need to say, Susie, I expect to see this, and there's not going to be any excuses allowed. You need to talk to me like Madam Suck. Get some results. Well, you know, my birthday is April 2nd. If you want to, you know, kind of have this as a gift for me. Oh, an April 2nd birthday gift. Oh, I like things like that. Okay. That's not too unreasonable. I'm not telling you, you know, Valentine's Day. So you've got a little bit of time. I'm sure you can get that wrapped up and proofed and out there on my Kindle by April 2nd. Oh, Mike. Okay. Oh, Mr. Sunglasses. You've inspired me now. I know what boys like. I know what guys want. I know what boys like. I got what boys like. I know what boys like. I know what guys want. I see them looking. I make them want me. I like to tease them. They want to touch me. I never let them. I know what boys like. I know what guys want. I know what boys like. Boys like. Boys like. All right, we are back. Thank you to Susie Bright for taking the time to talk to us. To hear more from her, check out our episode on Night Dreams. Now, we are lucky enough to speak to the lead actress of Smoker, Sharon Mitchell, and here's the first part of our interview with her. How did you come to be in adult films? Frankly, I was a very rambunctious child. You know, I always knew that I was an entertainer. I don't, you know, I, I would do, you know, neighborhood shows and school plays and so on and so forth. And I found myself, after a very bad marriage at a very young age, in my, you know, late teens, I found myself uh, moving, migrating to New York. And I was doing quite well. I was uh, working in a lot of... Um, pilots, I was doing some soap operas, a couple commercials, some off-Broadway stuff, some Broadway stuff, only chorus mainly. But uh, I was actually, you know, I didn't have to sling hash or, you know, show my pussy. So I was doing quite well, you know, uh, in a quote-unquote legitimate field. And my, my agent at the time, Dorothy Palmer, who was on 57th Street, said, you know, do you want to be the star of a movie? And of course, I heard the word star. <laughs> And I was transfixed. I said, sure, what do I have to do? And she said, well, you have to go for this audition, but you have to take your clothes off for this audition. And that audition was for a movie called Joy. I got the part. And it kind of all started from there. From there, I met some very interesting women, uh, wonderful women, women that I'm still friends with today. One thing led to another. I still continued my career in um, soap operas, commercials, whatever, you know. But uh, I really found a great way to say fuck you to the Catholic Church and my parents at the same time, and uh, a way to express myself. And I'm still a recovering Catholic, by the way, so. <laughs> yeah, nobody ever gets over that. Nobody ever gets over that. <laughs> what do you remember about being in Smoker? I remember Ruben and Michael, who were just great folks. They were the producer and director. And uh, they were terrific, and uh, Ruben is now, I think, living in Jackson Hole. Michael has since passed away from HIV. And I remember a couple of things. The first thing that stands out is the location, which was Michael's dad's house on the outskirts 
outskirts of Philadelphia. I want to say Black Horse Pike, if that sounds familiar, Black Horse Pike. And it was um, a beautiful, uh, a beautiful main house with a carriage house. And I mean, you know, with the with the old crank where they used to put like four and six horses up and crank them up to the top and keep them on. I mean, in the loft, it was it was just an amazing location. And the bathtub was like the you know it was like eight or nine feet long, but it was a cornball bathtub. It was just this beautiful, rustic, historical landmark home. And I just felt such a privilege to work in that location. And it really lent itself to the characters that I play because I kind of played a dark chick and a light chick at the same time. Um, I remember the parasol and, uh, you know, working with all my friends. I mean, you have to realize that back then there were only about 36 of us (laughs) that were working in movies. (laughs) You seem to really be kind of channeling your inner Dom when you were doing Madame Madame Souk. Yes, uh, yes. Um, Madame Souk was actually based on a place that I that I worked for a little while called Belle du Jour in New York City, and I worked there as a dominatrix. And uh, my uh, one of my neighbors who um, I was having an affair with, she turned me on to this place and. Um, it was quite wild. Uh, it was very exclusive. Um, lots of politicians, corporate demagogues, you know, people from the sheriff's department, you know, all kinds of, you know, celebrities. Uh, you know, well, actually, there were no celebrities back then. There were actual movie stars that used to frequent uh, these types of places. And I was actually trained for six weeks to be a dominatrix. So I was in the middle of my training at this place in New York City, Belle du Jour, when I, you know, had the privilege of working in this movie. So I was able to incorporate some of those skills, so to speak, to that character. Working there and, and sort of working on that training, I mean, like, what kind of things did they um, have you work on or understand oh, when it comes to God. being a dumb? It was so bizarre. I, I mean, I have to tell you, it was so fucking bizarre. First of all, you can't be a dumb without being a submissive. So you really have to go through basically everything that they train you to do to do to someone else has to be done to you. And that includes being laced to a wall, being hung upside down, being put on the rack, being pierced, being given an enema, various types of enemas, various measurements of different drugs and wines and things like that that people preferred. Diapers, golden showers, all these crazy things. I mean, you have to realize that back then, this was so forbidden. It was like the thing for me to do. I just fucking loved it. I was like, who wants to work on the soap opera? Come on, well, I can do this. It was awesome. I I didn't really like being a submissive, uh, so I had the choice being trained as a submissive and as a dominant. I chose to be a dominant professionally because I didn't want to be submissive to certain strangers, albeit in my private life. I can go either way. But uh, it was just a wonderful experience. And by the way, the, there was the woman that ran it, whose name was Belle de Jour, in my head. I hadn't seen her for about three weeks into training. And I thought, my God, she's going to look like Barbarella. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, just you know, tall and light and, you know, exotic and, and, uh, or redhead or Jane Fonda or whatever, you know, Catherine Bonneville, you know, uh, in my head, I had this whole buildup and she walked in and she was a short Jewish woman of about 75 with a lisp <laughs> and army boots. <laughs> 
Oh, and that's it was, good. It was just that one year thing, you know, but she was just a doll and she knew how to command people and she really enjoyed what she did and she really made sure that everyone was expertly trained. And I had worked with all types of people from all all walks of life. And it was just a wonderful experience for me. I worked there for several years and uh, and I truly enjoyed it. It was kind of a coming out party for me <laughs> that I never had, I guess, at 16, like a debutante. I had it there at Belle du Jour. <laughs> I had talked to uh, a professional dom before and she had said to me, like like you were saying, you know, these like captains of industry and stuff like that that come there. And, and she was explaining sort of the psychology of why these high power people seem to gravitate oh, yeah. towards that. I mean, what, what did you see? What did you find? Oh, what I saw back then, and I think that that society, you know, has broadened so much of the situation by now that I'm not sure those dynamics still are in place. Uh, but back then, I saw people that were in really strong positions. I mean, judges, corporate demagogues, people in high places that basically either no one ever said no to them or they shit on people all day long because they were just, you know, climbing up the corporate ladders at that time. And if someone's head was there instead of a rung, they would do that as well. And they, they had a lot of guilt and remorse about this, and they felt as if they needed to be punished for that. And, I mean, there was some bizarre stuff. I mean, <laughs> from stepping on goldfish and shoving them down someone's throat to, um, you know, things that you just wouldn't expect. I mean, really, the unexpected, um, you know, uh, rock and roll stars wanting enemas with speed in them and wine in them. And, and, and Belle de Jour, God bless her, you know, uh, made sure that we were trained. I mean, they would bring nurses and doctors in undercover to train us. I mean, this was a very high, high-brow situation. Uh, uh, at that time, the, the price was hundreds and hundreds of dollars an hour to have one of us perform our expertise. And it was all about the scenario. There was no sex involved. It was all about the scenario. Being an actress... What better thing could you think of, you know, to make money on the side when you weren't working in front of the camera? I mean, it was just awesome. You are listed on the soundtrack for Smoker as singing some of the songs. What was kind of your musical background? Oh, <laughs> my musical background, truthfully, to be honest, was a band called Neon Leon and the Bondage Babies. And I was a backup singer in the Bondage Babies, but... I had uh, a little bit of a recording contract. I think it was Polydor and Polygram at the time. I don't remember. It was the European split of whatever. And, and it was basically salsa music. I mean, you have to remember, I was kind of experimenting with everything. And, and back then, um, when you came to New York as a young performer, you really had to do a little bit of everything. Um, uh, I'm not so, I mean, it may be different today, it may not be, but I mean, back then you were taking ballet and modern dance and jazz ballet and singing lessons and acting lessons and, and so on and so forth. So you kind of had to do a little bit of everything. And of course, I love the rock and roll scene. I mean, I lived on the Lower East Side and, um, you know, I was in a punk band at night and I was working on a soap opera during the day and I was just having a great time. For a while, I, you know, I lived actually in a recording studio and uh, and and worked there. You know, that was my experience. <laughs> yeah, you always kind of portrayed this like punk aesthetic, at least in the the films of yours that I've seen. Always, and I still do. I still do. I am like one of the original punks. I, you know, 
I went to the Drama Studio of London, which was kind of an offshoot of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in in London in uh, 1975. And I was privileged to be around a store called Ian's, which was run by Malcolm McLaren, which was a great store, which had all these really cool S&M boots and so on and so forth. And I worked there as a model sometimes during the day and uh, in between classes, and I met people like, you know, Billy Idol when he was in Generation X, and what, you know, what later became the Sex Pistols, and we became friends, and, um, God, I think Sid Vicious kicked in my apartment, you know, more than a couple of times on visits to, uh, you know, to New York, and I, you know, I'm like one of the original punk checks, and very proud of it. Was there ever a problem, like when you're trying to do more, you know, straight roles like the soap opera and that kind of stuff when you were like, you know, rocking no, the short hair? No, what was a problem was once I started to really kind of come of age in my sexuality, you know, because remember that, that you know, you really had to walk into a movie theater. I mean, there was no such thing as videotape back then by Cracky. I mean, you really actually had to walk into a theater to see me. So I was able to get away with all kinds of commercial and, and quote-unquote legitimate stuff during the day until, you know, someone obviously saw me in, a, in, a, in an adult film, you know, in one of the movie theaters and came back and, uh, you know, told one of the lead actresses. And then, of course, it, it, it all became about, you know, she must have had sex for that job. She must have fucked for that job. And, you know, and then it all became, and then I really saw, wow, I have stepped into a world that I'm not going to be able to get out of. And my attitude at that time was, well, fuck them. I'm going to make the most of this because I feel comfortable. I just found a group of people that I'm still friends with today. I mean, we've been best friends, godmothers. You know, we pulled each other out of hell and back. We've flown across, you know, continents to save each other. And, I mean, there's a, just a bond from those core 30 or 40 people in New York City, you know, when the mafia was running everything, and there was no casting couch, for Christ's sake. You fucking, that is the job. You don't fuck for the job. You know, I mean, it was uh, it was just a wonderful thing. And so many creative people, uh, directors of photography, producers, directors, lighting uh, technicians and, and just wonderful people came out of that era. And I just I just felt that I've always made the right choice, and I, I'm so privileged to come from that background. So privileged and so proud. Smoker is one of these films that really kind of fell victim to the whole, you know, like Mies Commission and all the cutting and all that kind of stuff. What was your take on that when, when that kind of retro fitting of all the old movies happened? There's a couple things that went on there. I mean, the Mies Commission was a whole other issue. Censorship was a whole other issue. I had been, you know, um, in several lawsuits and, and, and several situations where I'd fought and won obscenity charges over the years, you know, under the First Amendment. And, and uh, you know, I mean, one of them had to do with a burlesque situation that I was in. But, but you have to realize let's really look at what was actually happening in the film industry back then and let's go back to the mafia because the mafia were great guys you know we loved them dearly they paid us very very well uh i mean i don't i mean i know after you know being a doctor and running aim for 13 years and seeing the industry 
you know, and it's various and sundry, you know, evolution and decay and, and evolution and decay and evolution and whatever it is now, um, I do know that we got paid very, very well. I mean, none of us, I mean, we got paid, you know, I mean, I did. Anyway, I got paid thousands of dollars a day. Whether I had sex or not, we would shoot for three, about three, two or three weeks on a good feature film, something like Smoker. You know, you'd probably have sex a couple times or whatever, and that wasn't really a sacrifice or some sort of a, you know, an issue of sacrificing a part of your body that you had to bargain for that you normally wouldn't do. I mean, this was about the character. We were actors. We were actors and actresses that were depended on to do a job, and the job was to have sex as that character would have sex, not, you know, sex and plot. There was no, you know, there was no difference in that. I mean, if you're in the role, we rehearsed and, you know, we fucked in character, and that's what we did. That was part of our character, and we loved that. But you have to realize that for the distribution, you know, the guys that that owned all the movie theaters back then, also owned the drive-ins, which very few people talk about and really know. And and you know how now they have the cable version and the hardcore version and so on and so forth? Back then, the reason why those plots and those wardrobes and those sex scenes were so diverse and so strong were because they had to put these up on the drive-in screens in different places. So that was really the beginning of the retrofitting of stuff. And then, you know, video came in, and and, um, that was a whole different situation. But I want to make it clear that there was always two different versions, one to be shown to the mass pop and one to be shown when you walked in, you know, what we used to call the raincoat crowd, you know. (laughs) Do you think that's always sort of been the issue for some people when it comes to adult film as they go, you know, obviously – you know, this is a plot, these are actors, but what you're doing on screen is real. You're having sex on screen. So for them, there's some sort of disconnect in their head. They can't quite get past that in some way. Yeah, but they can still masturbate to it, and that's the truth. That's called what it is, you know. <laughs> I resolved myself long ago to the fact that, that I am an entertainer for one reason, and one reason only, because if I can have someone forget their problems or their burdens or whatever, for at least two minutes or four minutes or 14 minutes or however long it takes them to enjoy my performance or jack off to it or whatever you're going to do to it, then that's my primary purpose in life. And I fulfilled that as as an entertainer. That was my job. That's what I did, and I did it well. back thanks to sharon mitchell for taking the time to talk to us about smoker and about her career and how she's doing now we come to realize that she doesn't do a lot of interviews so it was a a great honor to get a chance to talk to her and you'll hear the rest of our interview with sharon mitchell on our water power episode later this year we were also very fortunate to talk to david christopher who played howard in smoker and we're going to play back that interview right now smoker was basically an experimental artistic kind of movie for that time. It wasn't a typical porno movie at all. 
the idea behind it. It was a couple. Do you know anything? You know what? What do you know about it? I know a little bit about um, uh, Ruben and Michael, and then I mostly know kind of what happened to it afterwards, as far as you know the Mies and the VCA and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't. I just know the actual before it was shot, when it was shot, and what what happened then. You know, because that was amazing. Because at the time, it was a different kind of movie. It was, it was and it was a couple. They both did it together. They both shot it and they wrote it together. And it basically was. Sort of like a, a, an attempted, like a B. Abby Dance kind of voyeuristic movie, playing a lot with genders and voyeurism and mirrors and experimental art movies where they just would wasn't your typical big lavish like and porn. I think it was at the end of the film career because I had just started directing. I was one of the first actors, Rain Ryan Jeremy, who directed video when video first came out. So I remember John Leslie really well in the movie. And um, and I like had an affair with like Joanne Storm on the movie. I was supposed to be playing this guy in one. It was like an apartment building. The way we set up the strip shoot, we, I read we read the whole thing first. You know, this was really it was like a it was like a nine day shoot or something like. That. Then she set like an apartment it was really done so different. She set like a a small kind of apartment building, like a say an older New York tenant, and the apartment itself was sort of divided into like two apartments. So one woman lived on one side of the apartment and I lived on the other. And she had like a mirror, like a seeing mirror that you could see the other side of the door. It was very like, at the time, would you say, I would say, up and gone sort of, you know, that kind of thing. And then I think Diane Sloan was the woman on the other end. And I was sort of like, I think like maybe the janitor also for the building, you know, so I would come up and do things and I was a voyeur and John was a voyeur. John wore sunglasses all the time. And I was a voyeur who like loved to watch strippers and women, just like I am now. <laughs> I became a pussy man from that. I have always pushed the power of pussy for the girls to have a good time and show them off. And I was doing that in that movie without really realizing it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Because I was, basically one of the scenes was I was masturbating on one side of the mirror to her, to the other woman. And I think I might have been wearing something like uh, stocking, Gardabella stocking or something like that. Something like different. And then she was wearing something like unique. They, it wasn't a regular picture. But it had nothing to do with bisexuality or anything like that. It was just a really kinky kind of movie without heavy whips kind of stuff I've been doing forever after that. And during that time, too, because I was married to, like, the biggest dominatrix in the country between 1980 and 1985. Her name was Goddess Candy. She did a number of girl-girl movies and uh, another um, series, House of Sin and uh, Taming Rebecca. It was a whole bunch of movies done. Avon. Did you ever hear the Avon series? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, they were experimental movies, about 20 of them, 30 of them, shot in New York. And they combined bondage, female domination, male domination, kink, wild sex, great acting, realism, and the theater. But then they would do a show where they would have, like, the lead uh, scene and the two lead characters in the movie reenact the scene as they were in the theater. The place, seriously, was standing room only all the time. You couldn't get, it was so packed. For like two years, it was 
packed every single day. He had a stand in the theater. This was all during the day and night. That's how popular the stuff was. Long Jean Silva was in it. I don't know if you know she is. She was like a wild, kinky thing. Andy Sprinkle. You know, it was like a whole big thing. But that was uh, that was like between 19... It was the early 80s, right before video. That was right before video kind of stuff. Kind of here. So that was, that was the idea of really Smoker. It was like an experimental Harvey Donka, sort of like a Soderbergh would kind of do with a Sasha Gray kind of thing, but he did that so many years later. That's what they were sort of kind of trying to do. Some critics loved it, and others were both petrified of it, you know? I mean, I was, at the time, I was known as like an underground kind of, even though I started as a regular actor and in a, in a PA in the 70s, I was in a lot of movies, I did millions of loops. But I had really long hair and a mustache and would never shave it off, no matter what. And uh, when I when I started like living with Candice, who was a stripper that I really found and kind of like pushed into becoming like a huge dominatrix. She was on like, Tom Snyder's show, if you remember that. She was on all kinds of shows, and she had articles in Club Magazine, which I wrote a lot of them every month, to Sherry and stuff like that. So I was known to be on the fringes of the kink as a porno guy, and I got punished for it because I wasn't allowed to be in regular porno movies because they thought I was too kinky. So that's why I ended up in the Ava movie, and that's why they probably hired me for Smoker, because they had heard that I could do some different kind of, that I would do different kind of stuff that I wouldn't just, like, do. Eh. And especially in those days, the camera angles were terrible. Put it on a tripod, and you couldn't see sex. It was just about the story of the movie, if you had a good one. Or the loops, you know, the loops was a different story. I've been writing my book for five years, like... <laughs> Still going on. I was so much shit. Four decades, man. You know, <laughs> just seriously. Well, I was curious. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got in into the business originally? Yeah, easily. I was doing uh, PA work, and uh, I was going to college, getting my masters, and I was doing PA work because my friend and I um, both wanted to be in the film business. We wanted to be directors. And I wanted another teacher. I was a teacher too. But it was going to be a teacher or a director. So we started doing a lot of PA work. And in those days, the film business wasn't divided into, like, porno uh, production companies and commercial companies. Everyone did everything a lot. You know, you, like I was on a Joe Namath commercial, and they were doing some um, softcore kind of thing, right? It was the same building, the same everything. And they used to do those the businesses in those days used to make movies of what they called I can't remember the name of what the particular genre was called, but businesses would make movies about themselves and talk about how much money they're making for their investors and and stuff like that. And people did a lot of those kind of movies. Matter of fact, funny story, we would get some really tremendous supposedly cameramen doing legit stuff and they would come on a porno shoot and they couldn't shoot. They were amazed they were seeing sex. Don't forget, sexual revolution had just been breaking out, like, this is 1977, let's say, something like that. Had just been breaking out. So things were a lot different. The whole lot of people loved to have sex then. They wanted to act really good. They thought they were going to be real actors, and they wanted to really have sex. They really cared about the acting. Hell, many in New York, because it was New York and San Francisco. L.A. was like third place. Hardly anyone shot. John Holmes. That was about it. Mostly it was New York and San Francisco, and now it's more of artistic cities as compared when the peasants went to the valley, when all of a sudden it's, you know, superficial, whatever it just looks like, you know, which, is, which has been ever since. 
But that's why they, some people call the 70s the golden period of porn, because they cared really about acting, went to acting classes and schools, and no one really made it, though. You know, I mean, <laughs> Marilyn James, but guess she was already a star. You know, no one really... They all, everyone, mostly, I never did. I was to be, I wanted always to be a director and a performer. I never cared about my acting ability, so I didn't go to acting school. But 90% of the people who were in the movie, that's why they had these big, long scripts and everything, <coughs> excuse me, they went to real acting school because they wanted to cross over. They thought that was going to be a way. They thought the revolution, or sexual revolution, was going to allow Hollywood to allow them to be in regular films. That was the thinking behind it. And then from there, I got on to one shoot that Jerry Damiano had just done Deep Throat and uh, Devil and Miss Jones, and this was a movie called Portrait. There's a famous story that's been written in a number of internet interviews, but I'll give it to you again. Um, so I was a PA on the shoot, okay? And this is the second picture after Devil and Miss Jones. And the name of the movie is Portrait. And it stars this woman, maybe you know, she's on the internet. Her name was Jody Maxwell. She was called the singing cocksucker from Kansas City <laughs> because she was able to take two cocks in her mouth and whistle how much that doggy in the window. <laughs> okay? So, at the time, Damiano was so big from Deep Throat and Devil and Miss Jones, and he was looked at it as sort of like an intellectual manner of, of showing what sexuality is all about, that he would lecture at different universities around the country. Big time, like a, like a star, you know? Even though the FBI later went after Irene and all that stuff, but at the time, him as the director, and so Jody was a student of father, was like, I don't know, some big judge in Chicago or something, and she saw him at one of the lectures, it was a university lecture mostly, there were universities, and she told him what she could do. Her, Whatever thing, you know, about the singing, about the being the singing cocksucker from Kansas City. And that's what she got. No, so he hired her. He hired her on the spot and made a movie about her. It was called Portrait. So I tell you, the first scene I ever, so I'm a PA. I haven't been in the movies yet, okay? So, uh, I, Damiano calls me up a couple of days before the shoot. He goes, you know, one of the guys just canceled her. I need a guy. So all of a sudden my eyes like get bright. Need a guy? Huh? No problem. Free sex. Free action. You kidding me? <laughs> this is how you think then, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I go so I go to my dog, Jerry, I can do it. He goes, Come on, are you sure you can do it? I don't even know what my name was at the time. You know? As far as like wasn't it wasn't David Christopher, I can tell you that. And uh I was just a PA, you know. So I said, Yeah, I can do it, I can do it. He said, Okay, the scene's gonna be in two days. Now in those days I'm just coming off Girls who were like not shaving their arms, all hippies. I'm 63, okay? So I've been doing this for like 30 years, man. <laughs> That's why my book has been taking me forever to write. So um, the scene, so I'm, I'm only used to the like these like sort of not hippie girls, but new, you know, girls finally getting experimenting first time in the bushes when the girls were so thick you had to take like a rake and like, throw it up to see anything. And I'm all just dying to see pussy, you know, even back then, I remember. And I could never see, because the, the, in the films a lot, unless you were close-up, the cameras were always really long shots. They weren't like now with the close-ups. And it was like 
all hidden. I can see why years ago that a lot of people didn't probably do oral sex because they didn't have the right hygiene and if they didn't, and the air was so deep, and if they didn't wash it for like months, it wouldn't be too good. It's probably on the guys too. The same thing on the guys, you know, no difference, really. You know what I mean? It's just that we live in a patriarchal world. So it works like that. So anyway, the scene calls for, he says to me, David. He didn't call me David. He called me whatever. I don't say my real name, but I go by David. He is, he is, of course. And he says, Jody's going to be, no, Jody's 30 years old. I'm 22, 23, okay? First of all, I've never been a prostitute in my life. I never had to. I immediately went into the age of the sexual revolution, you know? So she's sitting as a madam on a toilet, and I'm supposed to walk in and get a blowjob. Now, if you gave me that scene today, I'd run for it. I love toilet scenes. It's tremendous. My favorite thing is kinky and shit like that. But back then, I was just a kid out of college, okay? <laughs> so I'm really getting nervous. It's around lunchtime. I come into the bathroom, and she starts to give me head. And she's there like a carabelle and stockings, like a real woman, you know? Even though I really like strippers always. I bought when like I was fourteen, fifteen I'd sneak into like strip theaters back in Massachusetts in the old days. They had these uh fairs that used to come by with tents and they had burlesque and I would like sneak under the tents. So I was always into looking at like the voluptuous women up on stage stripping. I was I've also always been a boyer. So I thought smoker was kinda of good for me. It's like a voyeur kind of picture, you know. And all my Christmas movies are all based on like voyeurism and stuff like that. So I like to look so she starts to give me head. I would say within seven seconds, maybe, with a cock as big as probably one-third of a heart on, I came. I came right away. Boom. I was so nervous. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was like, all right, man, that's it. So I go, I'm thinking to myself, wow, man, you finished. Your career is over as a porno actor. But... He came over to me, the director came over to me, Jerry, and he goes, you know, I really like you. You've done a great job as a PA for us, this and that. I'm going to give you a break. I'm going to look, put the scene, we're going to break for lunch, and I'm going to put the scene in another room on a regular bed, and you can do it there. And the scene happened to be, my co-star was Jamie Gillis. So I met Jamie Gillis on that particular movie portrait. And the rest is history, right? <laughs> I came through. She did the homage of that dog in the window. The portrait never became a huge hit. Not like Devil and Miss Jones. It was like three of them in a row he did right before that. If you look up IMDG, Jerry Damiano, you'll probably see it, you know? Because they were like, they played, they made so much money and they played the regular theaters. People used to line up and around the blocks, couples, to, to go to those theaters, movies. Unheard of, and of course, nowadays. And all up again, in the 70s, the people's names were on, like, the marquees, just like in Hollywood, like in the theaters. So they got to be really well-known. i never forget the first time I went into a regular theater and watched my scene on, on the screen, and, like, my eyes bugged out because it was, like, on a huge screen, and my dick looked to be about 500 billion feet long. You know, and I was like freaking out. I go, wow, this is great because I'm a voyeur, so I like to look at my shit or whatever, but still to this to this day. <laughs> but then it was pretty funny. And that's how I started making films. I did tons of loops. 
because I said I wouldn't cut my hair. And I got my, you know, I got my master's and half my PhD on history, my history buff, and a movie critic. And I communicated. That was my thing. My idea was to come back and teach in college when I finished my book, but I haven't finished a fucking book. Because <laughs> I went through the 70s, and then I was the first, Ron Jeremy and I were the first actors who were allowed to direct because you either had to know something about it, like nowadays, they'll let any actor direct, you know? But in those days, you had to know about films. See, I took film in school. I was in New York, Adelphi, right off NYU. I was a big period of like wild, new, creative movies. Movies in New York in the 70s was one of the greatest times ever. I was at the theaters all the time with these new directors like Scorsese and, and then the French directors or Truffaut. They were, it was brilliant time. The Paul Law, you know, it was a brilliant time to be in the New York. You had, the, you had the film wars, and you had, you had the theater, and you had the tremendous new movies and new, new things going on. Everything was new. You know, the old ways were being shunted and thrown away. Unfortunately, the tea parties brought them all back, but, you know, for a while there, it was pretty cool. <laughs> and then Ron Jeremy and I started, we were the first after draft. I did a picture called Secluded Passion. It was my first one. It started Kelly Nichols. She was the biggest star at the time. And basically, back then, even, I was playing along with transforming gender duties. Let's say a male is supposed to be this way and a female is supposed to be this way. This story was about me, and I played the part of a male stripper who stripped for women. I did the reverse. I reversed the, the typical woman stripping story, and I did it as a male. And it had a big New York cast, and it came out on video on library. And from there, I did a whole bunch of, of one of the first guys, probably the first, along with the White and the Dark Brothers, I did the black girl, white guy pictures. I did like 15 of them in New York. They were called Hot Fudge and Black Angels and stuff like that. You know, I'll never forget the guys that I worked for. They came to me and they go, we just did like a hot chocolate in, in L.A. It's like all black. It's all black. It's like a big hit. Can you do one here? I'm not a prejudiced guy at all, but in those days, without Viagra, black guys, one black guy in the whole business could get it up. They just would fail all the time. They'd get a BJ a little and stop. So I said to them, hey, I can't do that. Plus, I go, I love black girls. He goes, he's like, what? I go, yeah, I really like black chicks. I go, why don't I do black girls with white guys? He goes, yeah, and then the Doc Brothers got the big publicity, and they did bigger budgets than I did. And they were doing them from the West Coast. And let me tell you about whenever they did a whole bunch of those. They were giant, you know? Yeah, my pictures were going VCA and like LA Home Video and shit like that. It was hot size. I can't remember all of them. There's tons of them. So that's... And then Ron Jeremy and I would... When Ron was the only... The original person who would travel from the East Coast to the West Coast back and forth doing movies on both coasts, no one else did it. He was the first guy to do it. And... He, he, and uh, so he would put me in his pictures and I would put him in my pictures. We had that little deal going on, you know? So we were the first directors. I remember when John Leslie first did his first directing picture for BCA, he called me up and asked for advice. So I already had done like 20 movies. But I, I, we weren't pushed in the East Coast. The business was, was pushing from the West. That's when the video first hit the Valley. So all assets and everything, were pushing everything from out there. And I never went to the West Coast. I stayed in the East Coast all the time. 
And then eventually I I started making pictures of coast to coast, and then I ran coast to coast for eight years when it was big. Between 1986 and 1992, I really basically stopped directing regular features, and I ran coast to coast. So I started Hussy Man in 90. This is the 20th anniversary when I won Best Video, the original Pussy Man. I just called up Seattle and reminded them. Those idiots. I don't even know who's running it anymore. It used to be a great place. You know what it was like, XSEO? Like the Oscars, like these stupid awards, like AVN and all that shit. That's like the Oscars, you know, tight, formatted and everything. While uh, the, the XSEO awards are like the Golden Globe Awards. That kind of attitude instead. It's always been like that. So I like the XSEO. And that was my first Pussy Man was based on an idea that came... I loved huge tits in those days. I worked the big top for years, too. And I did a series called Pussy Power. It was probably the first facing series ever made, where we would bring in these Russ Meyer girls and some of these other girls who really didn't have to do heavy sex, as long as they had giant fucking tits, like tits as big as your head, you know? And uh, we'd bring them in, and they do basically strip. They do a whole strip tease, and then they'd, I'd, be, I'd be the actor, and they'd face it on me which I still do to this day. You know, I love, because I love pussy, I worship pussy and ass. But in those days, I worship giant tits, too. We would bring in all these strippers. He was big top video. They were huge in the 90s. They were selling like billions of these girls who had like 90 inch breasts. I'll never forget the first club that opened up with this. It was in New York and Wall Street. And then first, it was like, they said she had like a 65 inch breast. And then each week, the breasts got eight to ten inches bigger on each individual because because the club did the biggest business of any strip club I've ever seen in my entire life. They would be triple standing room. It got to the girls that had 115 inch breasts. Most of them took them off. So Big Top, I made sure I'd be friends with the owner of Big Top, who was Sam Lesser, who's since passed away. And I shot tons of series and features for them, Booze, Big Top Cabaret, uh, Busted in Las Vegas. But we used to shoot these girls whose breasts were as big as my head. And then a number of the porno girls saw how much money they were making without having to do sex. So they started getting tits as big as their head. <laughs> it was like a whole freak show for like five years, six years that these girls made tons and they didn't have to do sex finally they started doing like one little scene I think video exclusive Mark Carrier like brought him in with one of the agents to do some hardcore but for the most part they didn't have to do anything girl like became like Lisa Lips I don't know if you heard it was Busty Dusty and they were all named after peaks and mountains yeah, seriously you know I mean, I went out with her. I, I almost married her with this one. She wasn't like 100, and she was probably just 40. She was around in like 2000 Santa Fe. I met her on Big Bust thing. So I used to go to Tucson and shoot for them all the time. They go, they were, when I moved from New York to L.A., he moved from New York to Tucson. And then they became part of the Florida. They pulled up the Florida magazine, Big Breast. Score and Big Top were partners. They were together. And then... They made a deal where Sam took the video division, called it Big Top, and Score took the magazine division, and they went down to Florida. And then it ended up, Score made, ended up making a big thing. Because Florida then became big, like 19, at the end of 1990s, you know? That's when all those new little 
companies that have taken over the whole internet business started popping up, you know, clips for sale and prizes, the whole bit, you know what I'm talking about. And, and, uh, score went down there and started shooting. Because before that, I had like a couple offers to people to work out of Florida right when clips for sale was starting, and I refused because I thought we'd get busted immediately. Because Florida was a place everyone used to get popped all the time. And the next thing I know, I see, wow, I made a huge mistake. I didn't go down there. I didn't do the major deal. I could have been on the front end of this thing, and I was afraid we'd get popped because we always, Florida always used to get popped. It was just L.A. And after I left New York and San Francisco, just when everyone went to L.A., I was the only one who stayed in New York, and that's why I ended up running coast to coast because I went to the guy and said, who's running your company? And uh, they were the biggest distributor at the time, the other division they had. And there was some junkie running the company. And it was like a horrible cover they made. And I had just brought them, it was a movie with Bad Attitude, it was called. And I had just brought them like big contractor from like Penthouse or Weaver and this and that. And they made it look like horrible. You know? <laughs> I said, listen, you know, I just got married too. And I said, you know, Marty, who's running this company? This is, this is absurd. I'm making these movies for you. No one else is left here making movies. And you're making miserable boxes. You can sell tons. You've got a big distributorship. Let me have a job. I've done this before. The teacher did this and did that. So that's how I started running Ghost Coast. And I ran it for seven years. I did it. And, you know, I, I picked the girl to be in the movie. We picked the director. And I let them basically tell them what the concept was. We did series and and what they call rip-offs of movies. We did every parody from 1988 to 1991. We did the same thing, except we didn't call them parodies. We changed one word in the name, you know? And then we had great boxes. I had the guy, Jeff Lamb, who did the Vivid boxes. We he hired him and me at the same time. So we were like the third biggest company until I left. Because my, I made the first Pussy Man for Coast to Coast, and it was Picture of the Year. Got huge reviews, huge everything, because it was the first kind of Gonzo movie that I made into a big feature. With using Gonzo tactics, like girls talking to the camera, pussy clips, and jewelry. That's why I just started again. And then I did another series called Pussy Man Editions, where I auditioned new girls to be in the bigger features. So I just restarted that with Devils, but I added 20 years later, new tech, new, new stuff, you know what I mean? It just came, it's called fornication, whatever. And before that, I've been doing face any movies. And I, you know, I have a number of sites and stuff like that. And I've always pushed the power of pussy. And that made me different. Even my stuff's always been erotic, hot, nasty with teases. Just what I like. So I've done what I've liked as far as the kind of movies, for the most part. Here and there, I've taken a job, you know. For some company, whatever. I did a couple of vivid shoots. I hated the scripts or whatever. So they didn't weren't that good because I wasn't into what I was doing, you know? But I'm into what I'm doing and then they, I put passion into it. But nowadays, the directors, they don't care. They just want to fill a spot on their internet site. They could be shooting a mirror, they could be shooting a light bulb, you know? I could. It's unbelievable. I didn't see the difference. I didn't do it for a number of years, you know what I mean? And then when you come back, you know, I still have the whole perspective of it, and I see what has happened. It's just amazing. You know, to me, the golden years of porn was like late 80s, through like between 88 and 98, around there. 
that was like to me, they say seventies was the golden a lot of people, but I say it's between those years. That's when a combination of film and video both heightened in in uh money and in, in, in sex and in, in the, the looks and both with video and film and teas and everything started to be incorporated. It wasn't just and the girls were really pretty and they could act some of them too. And it wasn't just like in the seventies where there was a few like hot girls but they were just basically more into acting and loved sex. That was the difference. Back in those days, you could go on a set. They, would, they wouldn't call you for a seat. You'd be there all day, like a regular movie. And you get there at like 10, let's say. You don't do anything till 5. So some guys, they'd be fucking, people would be fucking in the back the whole time. So they get to their regular scene, they couldn't do it. Because <laughs> they'd been waiting around all fucking day, you know? And even if you didn't do a sex scene, you got paid. You know, they just pay you by the day. It was all of a sudden, like in the mid-80s, like I'm, I'm taking over coast to coast, and I'm hearing, oh, back in the West, yeah, they're paying them by scenes. I go, wow. This is like, well, we used to get paid by scenes, but they weren't seen. They were loops, eight millimeters, that they put in the fair, old theaters. So those, I guess, were scenes, I and mean, we got paid by that. Scenes. We got paid. I think the guys got paid 75 bucks. And the women got paid between 100 and 200, even if they're the biggest stars. But in those days, that's $75. It's probably $500 now. You know, this is like, let's say, 1976. The oldest guy still around, the oldest, the legend oldie still around who still does stuff, is Joey. Me and Joey, Joey Silvera. Everyone else is either long retired, passed away, or quit. Well, they don't get involved in the actual eroticism in the scenes, even though I don't really actually fuck or anything anymore. But I'm involved in some face-hitting. And some, I'm involved with it. It's like he is. You know what I'm saying? We're the only ones. We still have that. And he always has a quirky attitude. You know, and he took over the train. He got into transsexuals. But, you know, that's his thing. I got into, I'm into fetish. That's my thing. It's like I say once in a while I'm in a movie, and I say, I'll go to the camera and I'll go, a fetish movie or something, you know, where I'm like getting faces and the girl's like dominating me, let's say. And I'll go, see what happens when you're in the business for 25 to 30 years? You can end up like this. Is this what you want? Maybe you do, but maybe you don't. It's your, because I'm not like a civilian. I've done a lot of stuff, you know what I mean? <laughs> so... There's my whole rundown. You've got just not smoking, man. You've got a whole story. Thanks to David Christopher for coming on and talking to us about Smoker and about his career as well. It's always fascinating to talk to all these people who are involved in this era of adult film. Speaking of which, uh, a gentleman you probably know pretty well, Mr. Ron Jeremy, kind enough to stop by as well. We're going to play that interview now. What can you tell me about Smoker? What do you remember from that shoot? That was shot in Pennsylvania. That John Leslie flew in from San Francisco where he was living. And Dave and me and Dave Christopher came out of New York, and Sean Mitchell came out of California. So it was a very, they, they spent money on just transportation alone. Nobody was shooting in Pennsylvania, you know. There was a nice guy. He had a very nice girl with him, I know, his sister. And they're very, very, very professional, most so than most shoots. Because remember, back in the old days, they didn't really have video, DVDs, CD-ROMs. 
interactive CD that all they had was film. So, you know, it was even before the video. So it was interesting. Now, you acted quite a bit with Sharon Mitchell in that. What was she like to work with? She's great. Very professional. She later left the career of acting and became the owner of a healthcare company called AIM Healthcare Adult Industry Medical. She looked after people, so she had a very mothering attitude. You know, she was a very sweet lady. Smoker's fairly avant-garde. Had you been in many uh, shoots that were kind of that far out? Nothing even slightly. No, I had no respect for that. Because I didn't even do like that for no kind of movies. Sharon Rachel did. David Christopher did. Whenever he had his mistress, Candice, his wife. But me and John Leslie were pretty much new to that kind of world, kind of. So it was a new experience, you know? Because at that time, companies wouldn't combine, you know, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't combine hardcore with for any kind of violence. Even like SNL or D&D. So first time it was done. Did that kind of open you up for other harder, hardcore films? No. As the prosecutions have come along, they want to be rocking out, you know, and they're afraid again, you know. When you look back, I mean, you've been in so many, so many films. What are the ones that you tend to tell people you should really check this out versus, you know, the ones that they come up to you and say, Mostly my college, I tell them to check out the mainstream. You know, the mainstream or three college cult classic films that are huge in colleges and are still are because they're passed down generation to generation. And those are Detroit Rock City, the Kiss movie with Eddie Furlong, or Gasbo from the South Park three years, you know, and Boondock Saints with Willem Dafoe. Have you seen or heard of any of those? I've seen and, and heard of all three of them, yep. Okay. Those are, I tell people to see that. When I refer people to porn, I just refer to bad girls Amanda uh, by Night, Roommates, Everything TV, some of my best work in adult. Yeah, Roommates seems to be one that everybody involved with it just still talks about how great of a film that is. That's correct. Played in regular theaters. That seemed to be, I don't want to say the norm, but it definitely happened a lot more back then. Say what? I was saying it, it wasn't the normal thing, but I know like even Raw Talent played in regular theaters, a different version of it, but it was out there. Yes. How did you come to uh, get involved with the South Park guys for Orgasmo? They wanted me. They wanted me to play the part of of Jizz Master Zero. They looked for me, and they got the connection through the um, Tim Lake or this guy who operates Homegrown Video. You know, and the Tim Lake, I forgot his name, but he was one of the associate producers on the show. He had my phone number, and they wanted me in the movie. Originally, as the character of the director, and they made me um, the other character. What was that like, kind of uh, making fun of the industry that you had been in for so long? Fun. So these guys are so nuts. You know, South Park. I was always kind of like the first Kenny, because I, I die in the film. I do a karate scene. Trey Parker kicks my head in, and I'm back the very next day after my head explodes. I said, "Wouldn't I at least have a band aid?" And he goes, "You got them. You just don't get it." And then I see South Park. Or Kenny dies and comes back, and then I got it. How did you get involved with the with trauma films? Uh, this is the world of adult. Lloyd Kaufman was a scout in the beginning of his career for major motion pictures to find locations to shoot in. And then he started getting connections to the mainstream. I worked with him in some of his low-budget movies just as an actor. We became friends. I'm now in about nine of his movies. When did you kind of realize that you were known in the mainstream and not just for adult films? I knew years ago that I get comments out on the street like, dude, you really were funny, or dude, great acting, or dude, you suck, and he knew the number. 
you hear different attitudes on the streets. You know? It seems like back in the early 80s, there wasn't that divide that there was for a little while where it was you are an adult actor or you're a mainstream actor and you kind of crossed that early on and you've been doing both worlds for... Other actors, other actors did too. Other actors crossed that as well. Jenny Gillis had a nice part in Stallone's movie Nighthawks. Then he went on to be one of Elvira's horror films. I had a couple of parts in mainstream films. Sean Mitchell did Serena, Annette Haven. Not only worked on 10, she helped cast it. So a lot of us were doing both. You know, we were in the Screen Actors Guild. And we were able to do that. The union wanted no part of porn, so it didn't get in the way, you know. What was it like working with John Frankenheimer and Ronan? I worked with him on Reindeer Games, Ronan, Path to War, Dead Bang, Wallace, and 52 Pickup. And he was a great guy for me in all the films, you know. I was cut from some of them, and some of them you see me in. But every one of them, I got credit. You gave everybody quite a scare. Was that just the end of last year, or was that the beginning of this year, but when you had that it health crisis? It was the last day in January. It was called an aortic, I got an aortic dissection. Yeah, very scary. But uh, I did good by it, so hopefully I'll you know, live a nice long life. Tell me about the Ron de Jeremy, the rum. How did that come to be? Because there's two guys from Finland approached me, because Ron is rum in Spanish. So my standard joke is, they couldn't find the famous Ron. Ron Reagan died. Ronald McDonald has hamburgers. Ron Howard makes movies. And Ron makes thieves, which left me. So we made a deal, and uh, there you go. But that's why they asked me, because Ron is Ron in Spanish. The name of your autobiography is The Hardest Working Man in Show Business. What are you working on right now? I'm in Fort Lauderdale with a spring break in Panama City. So I'm doing the rum promotions. That's why I'm down here. I travel a lot. I just did a big movie. In Montreal with Malcolm McDowell, um, Michael Madsen, and uh, Daniel Baldwin. The rum, porn films, appearances. So I'm keeping, I'm keeping pretty busy. Jeremy stopping by here. It was great talking to him. So we were talking about Smoker. Let's kind of get back into the discussion here. Now, we've talked about how this film is censored, and then I was very fortunate as I was looking around online last night, I found that there's an uncensored version of this. I can't swear to the quality. I haven't seen it yet. So it is the Neon Knights 
box set, I guess, from uh, Alpha Blue Avon Dynasty. So you can pick that up over at our uh, friends DiabolicDVD.com. They have that, and it's got 17 hours of video, which generally isn't a good sign <laughs> for <laughs> if you have all that. Six hours of tranny porn all on one VHS tape. But, oh, my gosh. Yeah, but no, this is... Uh, this has got some uh, a lot of stuff that uh, I'll be frank I haven't heard of before. So like bizarre sorceress, Twilight Pink, Black Sister, White Brother, which is, sounds right up my alley. Vaseline Alley, oh. uh, Once Upon a Secretary. So, and we've got another David Christopher film in here where he actually directed it called Secluded Passion. So I'll have to check that out. But yeah, it's running about sixty bucks over at Diabolic DVD, and I just don't have the cash to check it out at the moment. Did the studio that, or whoever that produced this film, did they do similar ideas? Did they do similar things? I wish I knew. I mean, we know that the director behind this, Veronica Rocket, who is actually two people, it's Michael Constant and Ruben Masters. Uh, Ruben, I know, went on to do some um, production design work, actually was the art director on Miss 45. They only directed one other film, and that's also kind of out there i know what girls like but as far as the studio that was doing this i'm not sure if there was one particular studio that was kind of focusing in on this more avant-garde type of an adult film well it looks like it was released by vca and uh vca were one of the kind of the top dogs yeah they're they're you know one of the more mainstream adult companies to release it whether or not they actually produced it or just distributed it i don't i don't know for sure i do i do know that they're the ones that have released the dvd and um judging by what i've seen online it looks like the master negative that they had i mean if rumor is true was cut so that might also be which is atrocious a lot of these companies really did not think in terms of preservation <laughs> with a lot of these films unfortunately i think that's why disturb picks has been so great because they're a company that actually has been trying to take care of their archives but a lot of these companies especially when they got scared due to you know the cambria law and these commission i mean from what i've been told i mean a lot of them cut their master prints so bootlegging's not a bad thing sometimes yeah that's probably why we have an uncut copy of smoker Oh, yeah, exactly. There was nowhere to get a, an uncut copy up until I think this Avon release was like two months ago. So it's just kind of fortunate that it's out there now. And it was just happenstance that um, I, I lucked on that link to see that it was out there. Otherwise, I would feel pretty bad and be like, oh, hey, yeah, we're talking about this movie that you can't see unless you go out and break the law and illegally you know, download it. But now you can see it for, for real and, and, and legally. So it's kind of a nice thing. But every once in a while we pick a movie here that uh, you just can't see in, uh, uh, very easily. This also gets me back up onto the soapbox again to talk about Preach it, Rob. You know, I've said this before on a couple of episodes that we've done related to adult film, you know, probably most specifically Devil and Miss Jones episode, where my attitude is, is that the American culture around these films is such that it basically denigrates them and destroys them when they are a very important part of the overall culture of film. And I think that we need to understand their place and they need to be respected and treated as such. Part of the problem, as you were saying, though, uh, Heather, is some of the companies didn't even respect this stuff 
at all either, because uh, in a lot of ways, you know, what it kind of reminds me of is when we talk about silent film, where it was we made it, it had its run, we made our money, throw it in the trash. So there's it's hard for this stuff to, to find good quality prints of it or good quality negatives of this stuff. It's either that or it hasn't been treated well. It hasn't been, you know, preserved correctly. And I think that, you know, there really needs to be an effort, and I've said this before, to take the important films within this canon and to give it the respect that it's due, much like, you know, important films that come out of Hollywood or underground film or independent film or things like that, because this is an important part of American culture and it deserves to be preserved as such. Rob, you are totally speaking to my heart because <laughs> I, I agree 110%. I mean, that's part of the reason why I really got into writing and, uh, you know, about a lot of these films of the classic adult era and a lot of the artists attached to it because I feel like this is a, a huge part, important part of cinema that's really criminally neglected. And I think a lot of it's classism because if it's the sex element, well, how come nobody's calling, uh, you know, uh, Oshima a pornographer, Catherine Brule, a pornographer, but they call Damiano a pornographer. They call Steven Sadian a pornographer. And it's like, well, what's the difference? Well, you know, it's American and played in low-class theaters, therefore it's porn. But if you're foreign and play in an art house, it's not porn. And I think some of it's just uh, kind of outright snobbery, to be honest. I think it's partly that. I think the other thing that's in there, and it's not to say that Hollywood didn't have it, because if you look at someone like Lou Wasserman, who ran MCA Universal. He was connected to the mob and had mob ties. But I think a lot of it also has to do with, as I said, organized crime that funded some of this stuff, especially in the early years when we talk about things like Deep Throat. And then you end up with someone like, you know, Linda Lovelace, who comes out and says, oh, you know, I was forced to do that. So there's all of this sort of back and forth when it comes to criminality, people who believe that people were coerced at gunpoint in order to do certain things. I mean, there's there's negativity into it. Plus, we're dealing with what we call the American puritanical issues when it comes to around body and sex and all of that stuff. So if we can get past that and become, as you were saying, more European or more worldly, you know, we only are a, a country that's a little over 200 years old and grow up a little bit, then maybe we would see the importance of these films. And what I'm hoping is, is that we can grow up and see the importance of these films before they're destroyed and lost forever. Absolutely. Well, I think your silent film comparison is is spot on because I was actually thinking about this earlier tonight is and the whole thing with bootlegging is that I mean ideally you know we all love films we want like the nice remastered official copies we want our money to go to the artists absolutely that's the ideal but it, and with a lot of these films you know even if VCA is releasing it the guys that made Smoker aren't getting the money you know if you buy Cafe Flash Sadie's not getting the money dollars to donuts so but like with bootlegging like, that's what saved Nosferatu, like Murnau's Nosferatu, because all official copies of that were destroyed. And it was bootlegging that actually saved it. And that's why we have Nosferatu to this day. And we've had conversations, like I said, with you, with uh, Jill Nelson and Ashley West over at the Rialto Report, where, you know, I've been serious about this in terms of my conversation with Mike when it comes to this kind of stuff. I'm not necessarily saying that that Smoker is at that level. I mean, maybe when we get further down the road. But I definitely believe that we need to go in and save certain things like Boys in the Sand, 
Deep Throat, Devil Miss Jones, a lot of those early films. I mean, the stuff that, that Steven's doing over at Distrib Picks with all the Radley Metzger films, uh, the Henry Paris films, that is great. But what we need to be able to do is go one step further and go, this is an important part of American history, American art and culture, and this needs to be put into the Library of Congress right next to Jaws, right next to everything else. And there's no reason why this stuff should be placed into a ghetto of its own. It needs to be respected as great literature, as you know, a great erotic literature is as well in terms of um, when we look at, you know, great writing. I would consider what District Picks is doing that they're kind of the criterion of porn. And I don't see anybody else kind of picking up that mantle and doing what they're doing necessarily. I know uh, Vinegar Syndrome is doing a really great job, and I hope that they continue to put out other films as well. But you've got so many companies that you know are out there doing these great jobs of with extras and preservation. I mean, our friends over at Synapse, the way that they restore these films, beautiful, loving, all this kind of stuff. We need more companies like District Picks. We need more Vinegar Syndromes. We need these other companies to be able to take adult films out of that ghetto and legitimize them with these types of releases. Because the way that it is now, it's like, oh, well, the only way that you can get a lot of these things are on, you know, old VHS tapes or just you can't get them either. You know, luckily there was that big VHS boom. I think we were very lucky that VHS needed the product back in the days. But then there's the whole idea of the censorship that then happened, the idea of, you know, that you can't buy a DVD copy of Raw Talent or a DVD copy of, uh, up until just recently, of Smoker. You didn't have those companies out there that were preserving these things, and they were just treated as these disposable products. So it's so nice that there are these companies that are bringing them back, but I would love to see more of them. I'd love to see this kind of embraced by other companies as well. Bootlegs are great, and, you know, if you got no other option, but, I mean, let's preserve these films. They're worth preserving, and, you know, and I think a film like Smoker is kind of ideal because I think any stereotype that somebody has about adult film is completely smashed to smithereens <laughs> with, this, with this one. And there's one scene in particular, actually, um, going back to the whole bondage thing, and I'd, I'd love to see what you guys thought of it, where it's the, when uh, Sophie's character, the neighbor, is tied up, And she's got like the bandages around her head. And that scene, I mean, my jaw, because tonally that, and that's where the sound is at the height. That's where it's really getting into like kind of creepy, like industrial noise build up the way, you know, and the way her face is wrapped to me, it looked less like S&M and more like, um, almost like, you know, Magritte, you know, how Magritte had a lot of the the paintings with the, the fabric swabbed over the faces, like a, like a death kind of like a death shroud and that whole and the greet was a painter that did a lot of great kind of sex and death sort of stuff i mean more on the subtle end of sex but still and that just floored me that was just like a gut punch i loved it and then just having it you know ended with you know the henchman like eric edwards character throwing the bottle smashing it right behind her i mean that was i was i was just blown away by that i thought that was an amazing scene 
Well, I love those outfits that Sharon Mitchell's wearing, that whole kind of shroud that she's got on, the, the black at the beginning when she goes into the porn shop and everything, and then how she changes into that white um, outfit later on with the parasol and everything, and just kind of uh, affecting this more much more feminine form and everything. I love that she um, is being portrayed as, as both the, that black and white type character. Oh, and she was great, too. I mean, her, her whole character was like, it was almost like some weird, bizarro, you know, version of like a Rocky, like like Natasha, but, you know, New Wave. I mean, because it was like, she was almost like a comic book. But Sharon has such great charisma and gravitas, you know, anyway, that she really, you know, anybody else, I think, playing that character, it would have, it would not have been the same. It would have been a lot lesser of a creature, for sure. I have to say, Sharon is is giving a lot of monologues in the film and, and usually is very vocal in all of her scenes. So when they put that ball gag into her mouth towards the end of the film, my wife was just like, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Are there other films? I mean, we've talked a little bit about Night Dreams. Heather, I know you're a big fan of Dr. Caligari. Are there other films that are just kind of out of the norm when it comes to adult films, other things that we should be looking at as we're going forward? I know we've talked a little bit about gay films on the the program. I don't think we've really concentrated on any lesbian films necessarily. Um, I know I've been wanting to talk to uh, Maria Beatty for a long time, and I'm hoping one of these days to talk her into an interview because I think she kind of pushes the limits um, when it comes to erotica that has a lot of lesbianism in it. But how for you guys, what what do you see as far as being outside of the, the normal adult film canon? For me, and I think he's absolutely one of the masters as far as directors go, and I would love, absolutely one of my dreams is to have his stuff come out and, and be released on DVD and print would be Cecil Howard. Cecil's work generally, especially if you're talking 80s era, tends to explore a lot of familial dysfunctional dynamics. And sometimes that's something as flat out as incest. Sometimes it's something a little more tricky, but um, he pushes the boundaries, but he does it in a really intelligent way. It's not like taboo. I always, I'm not a big fan of the original taboo. Just, it just seems very like, ooh, it's so sexy. And I'm like, nope, I don't want to think about my family. Fuck it. I'm sorry. It's gross. It's just, it bothers me in a way that's not sexy. But the way Cecil Howard does it, it's very psychological and really smart. And I highly recommend Neon Nights, which actually was out on DVD, but it's really out of print at this point but uh that one the firestorm trilogy and i I mentioned scoundrels earlier with ron jeremy and that one again is one of the big ones about just a family kind of crumbling apart and there's this weird dynamic between father and daughter and that never quite goes into incest but it's unhealthy you know i'm always really interested in artists that, that can push boundaries in ways that aren't necessarily super obvious i mean anybody can you know do the obvious and have things body parts flying things exploding whatever <laughs> but but to do it in a way that that makes you kind of that goes a little bit deeper than just the gag reflex or the stroke reflex that i love and cecil howard to me is as one of the kings of that I think it was brought up earlier, and the only one that I can think of that's kind of in the same era would be Cafe Flesh. So that's that's one that I liked that I thought was sort of non-traditional, a little different. And uh, if we ever get a chance to talk to Jerry Stahl, who wrote that under an assumed name, I guess, uh, that would be amazing. Yeah, I think he follows us on Twitter, but he hasn't responded to any of my requests for uh, an interview. So Plus, he also wrote ALF. 
which was a big part of my childhood. <laughs> yeah, Jerry also wrote uh, Dr. Calgary and Night Dreams, and his uh, his adult pseudonym Herbert W. Day, I uh, believe, was an old teacher of his. From what uh, from what I've I've done in my research about Stevens' work, so. But yeah, it'd be great to get Stahl. I don't know the kind of a, kind of another mystery man, you know. We're gonna take another break and play a preview for next week's show. La pendule fait tic tac tic tic. Les oiseaux du lac pic pac pic pic. Glou 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 font tous les dindons. Et la jolie cloche ding ding dong. Mais boum, quand notre cœur fait boum, tout avec lui dit boum. Et c'est l'amour qui s'éveille. Boum. Il chante Loving Bloom Au rythme de ce boom Qui redit boom à l'oreille Tout a changé depuis hier Et la rue a des yeux qui regardent aux fenêtres Il y a du lilas et il y a des mains tendues Sur la mer le soleil va paraître Boum, l'astre du jour fait boum Tout avec lui dit boum Quand notre cœur fait boum boum Le vent dans les bois fait ouh la bichose à bois fait mè. La vaisselle cassée fait fric, fric, frac. Et les pieds mouillés font flic, flic, flac. Mais boum, quand notre cœur fait boum. Tout avec lui dit boum. L'oiseau dit boum, c'est l'orage. Boum, l'éclair qui lui fait boum. Et le bon Dieu dit boum. All right, in case you don't speak French, we will be talking about Toto Le Hero next week, where we'll be joined by Marceline Bloch the co-editor of the Directory of World Cinema. We'll also be talking about the film Mr. Nobody, starring Oscar winner Jared Leto, or Leto. I'm not sure. I always say Leto, but on the Oscars, they were calling him Leto. Do you guys know? Uh, I know the Leto shuffle. <laughs> <laughs> we got the Leto deck having a drink. That's very nice. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest host, Heather Drain. Heather, what's been new with you since the last time you were on the show? Well, um, in addition to writing uh, for Dangerous Minds and my blog, Mondo Heather, I can formally announce, because the cat's out of the bag, I am currently working uh, with Smoker's co-star, Eric Edwards, on his memoirs. Very nice. So, yeah, so that's, we've been working together, and um, Eric's an amazing, he's an amazing writing partner, and uh, a lot of people don't realize, because they're more familiar with him as an actor, but um, he also has written and directed a number of really really amazing adult films, including Motel Suites, Memoirs of a Chambermaid, uh, Soft Warm Rain, and those are all really worth checking out. But he's, he's a wonderful writer, and uh, we are hoping to have this done by early next year. That's the biggest news right now on the deck. <laughs> Very cool. And uh, I believe he is a Michigan boy. He is. Yeah, he was born in Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids. That's a den of scum and villainy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to live and work there. Whew. <laughs> well, we're definitely looking forward to it. And thanks again for coming on the show, Heather. You know, it's always great to talk to you. And we'll post a link where folks can find all the stuff that you have going on over at our website, projection-book.com. We'll also post a link up there on where you can get the uh, supposedly the uncut version of Smoker on DVD as part of that big box set, as Mike told you about. And once again, of course, thanks, everyone, for listening.
having sex, all the denouncement had absolutely no effect. Parents and counselors constantly scorned them, but people are still having sex and nothing seems to stop them.
think about love, don't think about bright moon, twinkling stars, red wine, silent whispers, holding hands, secret love letters. I think about pure sex, deep sex, hot sex, rough sex, girl!
when I walk on by, girls be looking like Debbie Fly. I pimp to the beat, walking down the street and my new the freak, yeah. This is how I roll, animal print pants out control. It's Red Bull with the big ass bro, and like Bruce Lee, I got the clout, yeah. Girl, look at that body. Girl, look at that body. Girl, look at that body. I, I, I work out. Girl, look at that body. Girl, look at that body. Girl, look at that body. I, I, I work out when I walk in the spot, yeah. This is what I see. Work out. 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 Work out.